I don't know how much you know about locusts. How's that for a first sentence in a sermon? But Joel, this prophet that we're going to be studying today, he, he took up his pen to write right on the heels of a devastating disaster, and it was a plague of locusts. So I wanted to learn naturally about locusts this week. And I found something in National Geographic that was helpful for me. I had no idea how devastating the locust can be. A desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and can pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than half a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day. So a swarm of such size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. So Joel, he just lived through that disaster, and he's a smart guy. He saw that locust plague in the context of Judah's outright idolatrous rebellion against God. And so he decided to write a wake-up call for Judah. He understood the sovereignty of God. He knew that God was in control of all things and circumstances. He knew that not one locust would have made it into Judah without God's permission, let alone millions and millions of them. He knows that His people are in total rebellion against God. And so he addresses them with what we're going to read today is this wake-up call. It was time for them to take their relationship with God more seriously. If you are visiting with us today, we are in the middle of a series on the last 12 books of the Old Testament. In Jesus' day, these 12 books were written on one scroll, and they were known as the Book of Twelve. We know them today as the Minor Prophets. Not minor because they are less significant. That just refers to the size of these books. They are relatively short books. These 12 prophets, they were preachers, basically, and they were preaching to God's people, Israel and Judah, over a period of about 300 years, roughly 750 B.C. to 450 B.C. And if you wanted to, you could read through all those books carefully, and you could identify three common themes. The sovereignty of God is a common theme throughout these books. The holiness of God and the love or the mercy of God. And we will see each of those themes today as we study the book of Joel together. There are, as I see it, Three parts to this book. There are three sections, and if I were to assign titles to these sections, for what it's worth, this is what I would name them. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 217 is the first section, and I would call that sounding the alarm. Joel is sounding an alarm for Judah. The next section spans 2.18 through the rest of that chapter, verse 32. I would call that the gracious God. And you'll see there that Joel is proclaiming the compassion, the mercy, and the grace of God. 
And there's a final section, the last chapter, 21 verses. I would title that section, The Last Act. Or the final scene where Joel is describing, even for us, the future and the final return of the Lord. So God willing, we will get through that today and walk out of here with an understanding of what Joel had to say to Judah and how that applies to us today. We should first pray together. So will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we come to your word today and we know that we need your Holy Spirit to help us to understand and apply. So will you help us now to understand things that are spiritually discerned so that we would know you more and love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to the book of Joel. If you are using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find the book of Joel on page 712. Everything, this is quite a contrast to Hosea, But everything we know about the personal life of the prophet Joel is contained in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So that's what we know about Joel. He was the son of Pethuel. Well, what do we know about Pethuel? He was Joel's dad. So that's it. There is not a lot of information about the personal life of Joel. We know he was a prophet. So, the the word of the Lord came to him directly. We don't have prophets anymore. Prophets wrote these books that you have in your Bible. So, God communicated directly to Joel. He was chosen by God to deliver this message that we get to read. And he was to deliver that message, not to you and me, remember. He is delivering this message to the southern kingdom of Judah. So God's kingdom, a couple hundred years before, after King Solomon died, it divided up into two kingdoms. Ten tribes in the north with their capital city, Samaria, and then two tribes in the south. Their capital city was Jerusalem, and they went by the name of Judah, which was the largest of those two tribes. So it is to that southern tribe, that's where Joel is, and that's who he is writing to. Now, as I noted in the introduction, there are three sections in this book, and we're going to go through those sections, but as we go through them, there's going to be three important questions that will be answered for us, which is really what I want us to think about. If you're taking notes, I'd write these down. The three questions that will be answered through Joel's prophecy are, number one, what will people be saved from? What will people be saved from? The second question is, what will people be saved to? And the third question is, who? will be saved. What will people be saved from? What will people be saved to? And then who will be saved? So let's get started with this first section, which spans half the book, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1 through the 17th verse of chapter 2. We're not going to read every bit of this book this morning, but we're going to read enough to understand what Joel is saying. The first half of his prophecy is Joel sounding the alarm. This is a, it's a wake-up call for Judah. And the way that he does this wake-up call in this first section is by alternating back and forth between descriptions of judgment and calls to repentance. So, 1, 2 through 12 is judgment. 
And then 1, 13 through 20 is a call to repentance. Then 2, 1 through 11 is judgment again. And then 2, 12 through 17 is a second call for repentance. So let me show you. In the first chapter, verses 2 through 12, Joel describes a, a judgment from God that had just taken place. And it had come in the form of this locust plague. These locusts had come and completely destroyed the crops of Judah. This would be an enormous deal. It would destroy livelihood. Beginning in verse 2, Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locust left. The swarming locust has eaten what the swarming locust left. The hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Skip down to verse 12. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. So that's judgment. It's not just coincidence that Judah is in rebellion. This is the discipline or the judgment of God. You can't curse me. You can't walk away from me. You can't pretend I don't exist. You can't serve other gods. And everything's just going to go well for you. That's not right. And for His people who are faithful in the middle of that, it's not good for you to not be disciplined. And so what does God do? Now he switches to this call of repentance. So there's been a judgment. Wake up, Judah. In verses 13 through 20, Joel switches over to a call for repentance. He's saying this locust plague, it was an indictment from God. So wake up and repent. Turn back to him. Serve him again. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament or mourn, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. He's addressing the leaders first. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Look at verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. That is a call to repentance. Call out to God. Judah, cry out to God, Judah, so that nothing worse might happen to you. Then, what does Joel do? He switches back to a judgment in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But this isn't a past judgment like the locusts. This is now pointing to a pending judgment. This is a future judgment. This is looking forward to a time when God would allow an army to come in and invade Judah. In other words, Joel is saying, if you think the locusts were bad, you haven't seen anything yet. That's why he brings this up. Past judgment, but there is future judgment coming. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. 
For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. I should pause because that verse at the end of, or that phrase at the end of verse 1, day of the Lord. Five of these minor prophets use that phrase, and Joel uses it the most. He uses it five times in this book. So it'd be good for us to know that when you read that, the day of the Lord, it is referring to a day when God visits, either literally or figuratively, a day when God comes down and visits in either judgment or salvation. Or, thinking of the second coming of Christ, both. So it's a day when God visits. And it's either a good day or a bad day. It depends on who you are. It's a, glori- it's a glorious day for those who are saved, looking forward to the second and final return of Christ. But if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, that day of the Lord is not a glorious day. It's a terrifying day. So, Joel uses it here to talk about this day of the Lord when he would visit in judgment through this invading army. He goes on and describes it in verse 7. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another, each marches in his path, they burst through the weapons and are not halted. Let's skip down to verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, his army. They are enemies of his people, but they are his army. He's using them to judge Judah, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the, there's that phrase again, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So he has switched back to judgment. Judgment is coming. So what does he switch back to now? The end of chapter 2. Verses 12 through 17, it is another call to repentance. So judgment, call to repentance. Judgment, call to repentance. Here are the first three verses of that chapter. They're also on the front of your bulletin. Daniel read them. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So in all of this then, this first section of Joel's book, he is sounding the alarm. And as he does, our first question is answered. That first question, what will people be saved from? What did Judah need to be saved from. It is the same thing that we need to be saved from. What did Judah need to be saved from? You see, when it comes to salvation, you can think of it either negatively or positively. To think of salvation negatively, if I am saved, what will not happen to me? To think of salvation positively is, if I am saved, what will happen to me? Or another way is to ask these two questions. 
What will we be saved from? What will we be saved to? So if Judah repented this first question, what would they be saved from? The answer is the judgment of God. That's the alarm that he is sounding. They would be saved from the judgment of God. We need to be saved from the judgment of God. Joe was telling these people, judgment has already come and more judgment is coming. So return to loving and serving God. They didn't need to be saved from a mundane life. They didn't need to be saved from difficult circumstances. They needed to be saved from the judgment of God. They stood before the God who had created them and purposed them and loved them. They stood before them disobedient, disregarding people, condemned to judgment. You and me, we don't need to be saved from a mundane life. We don't need to be saved from difficult circumstances. We need to be saved from the judgment of God. Let's move on to the second section of this book. It's found in 2.18 through 32. And again, I would call this part of Joel's prophecy the gracious God. And that is because he is reminding Judah of God's great compassion, which leads him to bless his people. And you'll see there are two stages of blessing here. The first is material blessing, and then the second is spiritual. So listen to this grace of God. First, in verses 18 through 26, if Judah would repent, here are the material blessings that God would bring. Verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So that's the turning point from judgment to pity. Verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Verse 24, The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I send among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So if Judah repents, it will go physically and materially well for them. They would receive undeserved prosperity in their future. And now second, those were physical blessings. If only Judah would repent, here are the spiritual blessings in their future. And these spiritual blessings are more significant than the material ones. Verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. 
Let me read the rest of these verses. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So this is a promise from Joel of future blessing for God's people. Now there's a lot of controversy over when each part of those verses is fulfilled. Some believe all of it has been fulfilled. Some of it thinks some of it has already been fulfilled or that it's still to be fulfilled. But we do know this for sure. Look back at verse 28. Peter will quote this text when he is preaching in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21 at Pentecost. And he will say that prophecy of Joel that you and I are reading here today, written probably 400 years before Peter was alive, Peter was saying that prophecy, at least this part right here, was being fulfilled right then in the first century. And that was, it shall come to pass afterward, verse 28, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That was to happen in Judah's future. And it has happened in our past. And that is the day when God sent His Holy Spirit to indwell His people. And now here we are, those of you who are as Christians, among those who every person since that day of Pentecost, upon your faith in Christ, has received the indwelling presence of God. The Holy Spirit with you and in you. For Judah, that day was to come. And Joel is preaching about this gracious God who would come and dwell with His people in this way. It's more incentive. It's more motivation. Repent. Turn to God. Serve God. Stop serving these idols. So that's the second section. Joel is describing the blessings that awaited Judah if they would repent. And as he describes that, our second question is answered. What will people be saved to? If people will be saved from the judgment of God, what will people be saved to? What would Judah, that's who he's writing to, what would Judah be saved to? What have you and I been saved to? If you're not a believer, but if you would believe, what will you be saved to? Well, there's a couple answers there for Judah. Prosperity and presence. They would gain the prosperity of fruitful crops, but more significantly, the presence of God. Speaking to us as Christians now, we understand that we have been saved from the judgment of God. We talked in depth about how that happens last week. Through Christ. Jesus coming, Christian, 
and taking the judgment of God in your place and giving you His righteousness is how we've been saved from the judgment of God. But we also are reminded here in Joel what we are saved to. We are saved to God. We will be saved to prosperity, by the way, one day. Heaven is quite prosperous. But listen, this is so important. The mansions or whatever, right, in heaven. The mansions, the the streets of gold, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be flying. I mean, there's some amazing things that are in my understanding of what the new heavens and the earth are going to be like. And, and, and it's, it is amazing, and I'd be lying if I told you that I'm not excited about that and looking forward to that. But all that prosperity, that is not what is so great about heaven. Heaven is heaven Because God is there. That's what makes heaven, heaven. It is that we will be with God. We are saved to God. We are saved from judgment. But we are saved to God. Judgment is what does not happen to us. But reconciliation to and fellowship with God is what happens. When you become a Christian, you get God. Right now, through the very presence of the Spirit of Christ, who is the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, in heaven where we'll see God face to face. Isn't this what 1 Peter 3.18 says? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So, Jesus died to bring you to God. Jesus didn't die to bring you to an abundant life. Jesus didn't die to bring you to prosperity. Jesus didn't die to bring you to health or wealth. Jesus didn't die to bring you to an exciting life. Jesus died to bring you to God. This is what John Piper meant when he titled his book. Some of you have read this little book, God is the Gospel. Gospel meaning good news. God is the good news. In other words, the good news is God. God is the good news. This is your joy as a Christian. You know it's not being saved from difficult circumstances. You learned that real quick. It's you've been brought to God. You were not at peace with God, and now you are at peace with God. You were not His beloved, and now you are His beloved. You were not His people, and now you are His adopted child. He is your Lord. He is your King. He is your Savior. He is your Rescuer. He has delivered you. He has set you apart, never to let you go again. We look forward to Revelation 21 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, this is speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, what happens when that happens? What happens when you dwell with God? Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Okay, we've got one more section to read, and then a third question to ask. Here is chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, and here is the, the final act, the last scene of human history described by Joel. It is the future and final return of the Lord. This day was still to come for Judah, and it is still to come for you and me. It is the Second coming of Christ when He will come to judge the wicked and save the righteous. What will He do with the wicked? We're told in the first 16 verses. I'll read a sampling. It is the final judgment of the nations. Verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem... I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. He will gather the nations together. Verse 12, skip down. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. If you are not at peace with God, this is a terrifying day. This valley of decision is not a sweet place. It's a terrifying place. This is not an altar call, a time for personal decision. This is not a last chance or a last opportunity. This is the final judgment of God, game over. And His final verdict will be rendered. It is that kind of decision that they're all about to hear. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. This is a picture of God's final judgment of the wicked. And what will He do with His people? They won't be gathered up in the valley of Jehoshaphat. They will not be brought into the valley of decision. Joel tells us our fate, Christians. Chapter 3, second half of verse 16 through the end of the book. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. What a difference. So to some, He is terrifying. To some, you run away from this God. But there are others on that very day who run to Him. Because He is a refuge. He is a stronghold. Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever In Jerusalem to all generations, I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So we're done with our text. 
And we're ready to answer the third question. Joel answers for us. We understand what those saved are saved from and what they are saved to, but now a very practical question that we want to know the answer to. Who are the saved? Who will be saved? And there are different ways that we can answer that question. We can answer that from God's point of view. We can answer that from our point of view. But let's answer it this morning the way Joel does in chapter 2, verse 32. He writes, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the saved, those saved from the judgment of God and those saved to God, are those who have called on the name of the Lord. They are those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not calling on anyone else. I'm not calling on anything else. I'm not calling on anything else to save me. But the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul will quote this verse in Romans 10. I'll read verse 9 and then verse 13. This answers our question. Who will be saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13, for, and here's Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but it's not just confessing with your mouth, right? It's not just coming forward and saying a prayer. This isn't a, a repeat after me. This isn't extending an invitation to Jesus to come into your heart. This is very different from all of that. This is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe it. You believe it. The belief leads to the confession. You believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead. You know he died, you know why he died, you know he didn't stay dead, you know he's alive. And you believe it, and you believe him, that Jesus came and lived and suffered and died and rose from the dead in your place. So that you could be reconciled to God. Believe that. Confess that. Your faith is in Christ. And it changes everything. Changes the way you think. Changes the way you talk. It changes the way you live. So in conclusion, how about one more question? One that I didn't list at the beginning, but one that you should know is coming. How should we respond to Joel's message? We're not Judah. But how, when we read about this judgment of God and we read about His grace and we read about His mercy and we understand what people need to be saved from and what people need to and can be saved to, when we understand that the way to be saved is to call on the name of the Lord, well, how should we respond? You know, don't you? 
we should call on the name of the Lord. If you're here and you are not a Christian, you should call on the name of the Lord. What you have heard today, it is true. It is true good news of how you can be brought to peace with God. And you should confess it as true. You should believe this good news of the gospel. You should turn from whatever else you're turned to right now. Whatever else you're about. Whatever else you're worshiping. Whatever else you're giving all your money to and all your time to and all your hope to. You should turn from that now and turn to Jesus. And put your faith for salvation in Him alone. We should, back to that text on the front of your bulletin, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Some of you are here today and you are Christians but no one would know it. I mean, you say you're a Christian, but you don't sound like one when you talk. You don't look like one when you live. But maybe you are a Christian. And maybe you are in a season of rebellion. And you're not listening to God. You're not serving Him. You're not loving Him. You say you love Him, but you're not interested in reading His Word. You're not interested in worshiping Him. Other things are more important to you. Well, what should you do? you should call on the name of the Lord. You should repent. You should turn to Him. Maybe you've done that in a once way and you've truly turned from sin and placed your faith in Christ and you are a believer and you are a Christian and there's nothing that you can do to lose that and so you're doing a lot of stuff right now that should lose that, but it doesn't because God is so good and so gracious and so merciful, but now you need to repent. Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. So Christian, you had that one-time repentance that changed everything, but now don't you repent every single day or every single week? And turn back to God again. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Are you sorrowful over this? So here God is initiating it. He is calling out to you through His Word. Verse 13, And rend your hearts and not your garments. This needs to be an inward thing. Don't just make the outside of the cup look good. Rend your hearts, return to the Lord your God for, and the, here's the answer given. And this is, this, is what, this is what sobers every Christian. It's what turns every Christian back to God. And it's not rend your hearts and return to God and repent, for if you don't, He's going to smoke you. He's going to destroy you. He's going to just wash his hands of you. He's going to, he's going to move on from you. So you better return to him. That's not the message, Christian. Return to him for... He is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding 
in steadfast love. See, you don't have to wonder with God. Don't you have people that you've wronged and you know it and you're a little nervous when you go to them? I don't know how this is going to go. I'm not sure we're going to be reconciled. I'm not sure I'm going to do this right. I'm not sure it's going to come out right. I'm not sure they're going to forgive me. I'm not sure that we can move past this. Have you experienced that anxiety and that fear? Christian, you don't have to wonder with God. He is gracious. He is merciful. He will always forgive. He is abounding in steadfast love. And it is that truth that gives us gratitude and gives us hope to return to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this good news for us as your children. God, you have saved us from so much. You have protected us from a judgment that we deserve and You have protected us from even so many judgments in this life. You are truly gracious and merciful. You are abounding in steadfast love. And so God, for those who are here today who are your children and who are not loving you and seeking you the way they should, I pray that they would be convicted of their sin now and see you as gracious and merciful and turn to you. And for those who are here today who do not believe, who do not know you, God, I pray that this wouldn't be foolishness anymore to them. I pray that this wouldn't just sound like a fairy tale to them, but that they would know it is true and they would feel it in their bones. And that you would cause them to be born again. That they would love you and serve you all their life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take communion together now. If you are visiting with us today, you are welcome to take communion with us. If you are a Christian, if you're a baptized believer, you've put your faith in Christ, you're committed to him, committed to his people whether it's this church or another local church that preaches the same gospel you heard here today. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's take this bread together. Which is a symbol of the body of Christ. And let's eat this together.